Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO Podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining us today is Dan Geshwind. Dan, can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Thanks for having me here, Grant. It's really great to be here. I'm a professor of neurology, psychiatry, and human genetics at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, and also in my role as Associate Vice Chancellor and Senior Associate Dean, I direct the uh, relatively newly formed Institute for Precision Health at UCLA. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Basically, the idea is that there's a whole new wave of genomic information and a revolution on the horizon in medicine that even the most advanced academic medical centers have not really prepared for, although, although again, like UCLA, we are beginning to prepare for it. It kind of falls under this umbrella of what many call precision medicine. We call precision health because it involves prevention and health. We'd like to be precise before people get sick. And the notion, and I think Obama stated it the most succinctly and clearly, of course, one of his speechwriters did, every person gets the right treatment at the right time. And so what that really means is that we take into account individual differences as we are treating patients. And that involves crunching a lot of data to understand the individual's genetic background, as well as in the future, potentially, a lot of other environmental and sociodemographic factors. There's a huge amount of social determinants of health as well that can be put into these equations. For what types of indications do you think we'll see the earliest advances in this space? Well, right now, precision medicine is being done, right? In about 6% of cancers, a mutation is identified in the tumor that uh, requires a very specific targeted therapy. And of course, 10 years ago, that was less than 1% of cancers. So this is a rapidly changing field. In the area of Mendelian disorders or rare genetic disorders, which individually are rare, these are disorders that are fewer than one in a thousand, but that if you add up the percent of people who have a rare disorder or who have a common disorder, but a rare cause of it, it's probably, it's somewhere between seven and 10% of people And again, at major medical centers, it might even be higher at tertiary care centers. And so those people get diagnosed often, they go through what's called a diagnostic odyssey, where, you know, they come to multiple experts around the country, nobody can figure out what it is. And it's not until they get a clinical sequencing study done that it becomes obvious, oh, they have that disease because they have a mutation in that gene. And so we believe in in taking a sequence first approach to people with rare diseases because we and other people have shown that we being UCLA and my colleague Stan Nelson and others, that if you sequence, you know, the the yield of the test is somewhere close to uh, 25-30% depending on the indication. Again, congenital heart disease, rare neurodevelopmental disorders, immunologic disorders, etc. And there's really no single clinical test that has a yield as high as that. And as the sequencing costs get cheaper, it it becomes by far the least expensive and most efficacious thing to do. Of course, it's not just an expense issue. It's an issue of the poor patient family going through years of uncertainty and and stress, going to multiple doctors, et cetera. So those are, you know, the kind of main areas that it's being done is in undiagnosed diseases, developmental disorders, of course, the typical pediatric genetic syndromes, 
more and more in unusual clinical conditions and then in cancer. And, and most of that is finding rare mutations that cause things, but there's also common genetic contributions to diseases. And as more and more of that is understood, we'll be able to apply what are called polygenic scores. That is, look at the common additive risk that people share in common that might predispose them to various common conditions. And we can use that in screening tests. So for example, you could imagine right now, the way women get screened for breast cancer is uh, by age. And, and, and there's some consideration of family history. In the future, you could have polygenic scores and genetic testing, identify everybody with a rare mutation and increase surveillance at early ages in those patients, as well as uh, try other preventative approaches that might come along. And then with those that have, you know, that are, let's say, in the top uh, fifth percentile or, you know, depending on what percentile of risk you're in and your age, there would be a formula for when you get, you know, when it's optimal to uh, screen you and what kind of screening you should have. But you could imagine if you're in the top 10% of risk for many conditions, you might have a risk that's similar in magnitude to some of those who have a rare mutation. And one should probably be screened, you know, and treated that way clinically. And so as sequencing costs come down, it's going to make sense for health systems and hospitals to actually do this as just part of their normal routine care. Hopefully insurance will reimburse it, but even if it's not directly reimbursed, it's going to have to become part of care one way or another. How do you think the rollout will happen uh, with this work being spearheaded at major academic medical centers? When will community health centers in Mississippi see this? Well, that's a great question. Well, number one, you know, actually, uh, one of the pioneers in this area is the Geisinger Health System, which is a private, non-academic system, very much like Kaiser. I think those types of systems where they're both the insurer and the provider really makes a lot of sense because it's, it's a very, very cost-effective approach. So I actually see that it, will, it might happen there even more quickly than in some of our more disjointed systems where we're actually not the insurer, just the provider. And I think smart insurers will make agreements with providers to actually provide these things because it will reduce cost and morbidity and the and the burden of illness uh, later on. But right now, I think we're in an area where there's enormous promise. There's some areas where certainly genomic medicine is used in clinical practice and should be used a lot more, like I just described, but that there's a tons of research that needs to be done using the clinical records and genomics to identify those people most likely to benefit and to develop the algorithms. So it's a whole new area of research in medicine. One of my colleagues has uh, likened it to thinking of the healthcare system as a learning healthcare system where the patient records and then other research data that we might collect like genetics gets integrated and we learn from that as we, as we follow patient trajectories and then apply that information back into clinical practice. And that's our view of this at UCLA. And in fact, we've initiated a major, what we call population health initiative called ATLAS, where we're collecting 150,000 at least of our four to five million patients and genotyping them. And we have a collaboration with Regeneron Genetic Center to um, sequence those patients as well and get the data back. Part of our plan is to return results that are clinically actionable, like some of those that I mentioned. Let's say if somebody has a familial cancer predisposition gene or 
a rare mutation that increases their risk for heart disease in the lipid pathways, that those will get uh, flagged and treated as long as the patients consent that they want that type of data back. What if it's non-actionable? Then it's non-actionable. It's, it's non-actionable. Then, then we don't give it back because we're not helping anybody necessarily, right? It, it might be of interest to people, but because we're, a, we're not really a commercial entity, we're not trying to do things that entertain people, for example. We're really trying to do things that are serious and that help their health. We're focused on things that are clinically actionable and that our colleagues in medical genetics and the American College of Medical Genetics would largely agree are things that should get returned to patients because there's actually something that you could do to help them. Sometimes it's just knowing that they have something that predisposes to certain things, and so they get an annual scan to check that out. And other times there's actually an action or a medicine that should be taken to prevent things. So those are the types of clinical actions that should be taken. In Geisinger, who has kind of pioneered this in their sample, which is not an ethnically diverse sample like our sample at UCLA, but still is a very informative sample and very important set of observations have been published there, the prevalence of such clinically actionable findings could be as high as 3% and is going to increase as drugs get made. In fact, right there are like multiple drugs that have come out for certain diseases in the last two or three years that wouldn't have been on that list five years ago. And so as that changes, we'll be reviewing that and adding to that as well. What are your thoughts on the data management side of this? Uh, do you think HMOs will be storing patients' genome or exome sequences? Yeah, I, well, I mean, our data management is all in the cloud. Like we're currently using a Microsoft Azure cloud, uh, which our health system has been using and is very involved. And uh, Microsoft's been very collaborative on that. But I think most of it is going to be in the cloud. Uh, some will be on premises as well. It is a cost, right? And so for the smaller systems, that don't have academic laboratories and academic people to come and help with this. There may be commercial solutions to that or local governmental solutions, just depending on regulations and laws and things. So uh, one example is that, you know, at UCLA, we built this enormous and we're building enormous infrastructure. And this involves the health system, informatics people who are experts in that, but they're also working hand in hand with people in engineering and computer science who are experts in databases and genetics and genomics, which the health system isn't, to streamline these efforts and to make them work. And so that takes the merging of two very different cultures sometimes and working together. It's been remarkable to watch it happen. It didn't happen overnight, but it's working really, really well in our system. We're really fortunate to have collaborative, excellent people on both sides. So that's really critical. But I could see how uh, many of the smaller hospitals or even large hospitals that don't have uh, resources like this and faculty who are willing without being paid to come and work on this thing because, number one, it's so interesting. And number two, it's so important. It's such an incredible opportunity to have an impact. There are a number of geneticists who are computer scientists who you probably remember well who um, have changed their direction of research because of this and are focusing almost 100% on these biobanks and medical records now because they realize it's a source of big data, but they can also have an impact with their research that was not possible before. 
But a lot of what they're doing in the initial phases of this is quite voluntary. It's really great for me to watch that and just see all the goodwill that comes with this new area. What do you think are the greatest roadblocks? I think it's a knowledge. There's a lot we don't know. Right in cancer, we, uh, there's 6% that are actionable. Even some of those aren't cures, right? We want to get to a point where we're over three quarters or you know 90% or everybody, right? But of course, not all cancers are genetic. But even those with an environmental cause, it's of course probably driving something in the somatic tissue that one can identify. And so the kind of genetics and genomic technologies, I think, are, are there. And as the costs come down, they're applicable. And I think culture has to adapt. I think it's much easier to implement these things in countries like England, where they actually are now sequencing every child, I think, who's admitted to the hospital, and certainly all those in ICUs. Makes total sense. It should be done. It's not being done here because it's not an organized single-payer system, and so it's going to depend upon research, philanthropy, and a health system deciding they want to waste some money on it, right? Because at some level, it takes away from their bottom line, and a lot of health systems are profit-driven. That's by the very nature of our system. They have to remain financially solvent, or they cannot operate. It's a very different kind of system than most other developing and developed countries out there that have more organized public support for the health systems. And of course, with COVID, we've seen that really remarkably, you know, the remarkable failure of our lack of that. So I'm hoping that we move towards a more organized, centralized system so decisions are made rationally. You know, in fact, COVID is an interesting uh, example, potentially, of precision health, where we're, we, with a bunch of our other uh, California health systems, uh, the UC health system, we've organized a consortium where we're sequencing and genotyping our patients with COVID to identify mutations that make people particularly susceptible to very bad outcomes. Because, as you know, most people get it. And even if they get sick, don't you know, it's like a bad flu. And so, but then there are those that have catastrophic complications, either neurologic, clotting, or pulmonary or immune. And, you know, we think that that's likely due to rare variants in the immune system that is due to host factors. There are probably two things going on. One is the dose that you get, right? The amount of COVID you're exposed to and that gets into your airways and, and invades your body. And the second is how you respond to it, the host response. And that's largely driven, not 100%, but has a big genetic component. And that can be measured. And there already are a lot of hints in published work that there are genomic features related to interferon and immune response that drive that. And so down the road, we could potentially, before anybody gets COVID, know who's at highest risk for these things. And really, that would be quite quite easy to prevent, right? You just really keep those people away. Make sure they have N95 masks, that they have face shields and all that when they go out. And that you know, that we really uh, treat them carefully. You know, then there are elderly people with a lot of comorbidities who should do really poorly, who just do great and are asymptomatic. And those people may have protective alleles. And that could be super helpful in helping us develop drugs to, you know, to treat it. So all of that is just a current example on many ends of how our system can approach this, and but also how it's failed in some ways, unfortunately. On the topic of COVID, are you willing to go out on a limb and speculate about what, how we might see it play out this year? Well, I can tell you what my concerns are, and they've been there actually since the beginning. All this 
you know, viral evolution. I mean, you know, that's why we don't have vaccines to uh, common colds and why we get flu vaccines and they're marginally effective. So the more that something gets in human populations, the more it has a chance to mutate. And, and also there's natural selection going on. It's a natural selection experiment. It's not just the mutations, it's the selection pressures. I think it's a strong possibility that this is not going away. And COVID is just an example of a this, but that these type of illnesses will become more and more prevalent and there'll be times where they're low level. And then uh, when uh, evolution occurs, they could explode and we have to be ready for them. But my sense is that even though I'm getting my second dose of vaccine tomorrow, I would not be surprised if in the fall or winter I have to get another shot, not just to boost my immunity to what's out there now, but what's new. You know, the good news is that the, the technology could bring us ahead of this, right? It's really extraordinary how the RNA packaging with the lipid-coated nanoparticles and things that have been developed by Moderna for years for delivering gene therapy or, or vaccines has really uh, shown its amazing utility. So I'm obviously very, very bullish on technology in the future. But I think just like HIV taught us and, and hepatitis has really changed virology, um, it just shows us how important infectious disease is and will remain. Uh, we're never going to conquer infectious disease, although we think we have, because it's commingling with us. It's, it's part of who we are, right? It's part of uh, life on Earth. So let's talk about your lab. What would you say have been the highlights of your scientific career? Well, that's a tough one. I'm hoping that they're still ahead of me. My goal when I started all of this was to use the basic science and genetics, genomics, and neuroscience to understand disease and to develop therapies. And in the disorders that I work on, we haven't gotten there yet. So I'm hoping that the big advances are still ahead of us. And we have some glimmer of that. I, I think the methods and approaches that we and others are taking, genomics really does provide new opportunities to develop better, more targeted therapies that are more mechanistically driven, safer, and more efficacious. So, so I'm positive about that. It's an interesting thing. I, was, I don't reflect very much, but I had a, about 30 seconds of reflection this morning as I was looking at, through my calendar and seeing that I had a great chance to talk with you, Grant, this afternoon, which I've really been looking forward to. It's always wonderful to talk with you. And I was thinking, you know, if I'm so interested in disease, why don't I work at a biotech or pharmaceutical company? And that has crossed my mind over times. I bet you were going to ask me that. And I think in some ways, it, there's some lost opportunities there, right? Because that is the focus of, of biotech and big pharma is, is to develop these medicines and to relieve suffering. But there are two, two parts of it. One is in the earlier parts of my career, I really got an enormous pleasure and all, always have and always will from seeing patients just having that experience and even patients with rare genetic diseases that we can't treat, discussing them and talking about the research that we're doing to give them and their families hope that somebody cared about them and was working on this. So that was a piece of it. Another piece was the training. There's nothing I enjoy more than walking through the lab at 5 p.m. and seeing what people are doing and just sitting down and talking with them about, about what they're doing. Unfortunately, you know, being so busy and now with COVID, I don't get to do it at all. But I recognized at one point that with the notion of, you know, of kind of enjoying yourself while you're trying to have a significant life and making a difference in the world and having impact, I realized that one of the impacts that gives me the most pleasure is the watching students 
and postdocs grow in the lab, interacting with them, arguing, learning from them because you know my yeah, I'm still in school all the time, and um, especially from the more mathematically inclined people like you that I was always asking a lot of questions about. It was really, really great for me to explore these areas that I, you know, that aren't my areas of expertise with some of the people in my lab, but also then help students and other people um, find their way and, you know, train them. And so the training part of it has been really, really uh, satisfying to me. Just personally, I enjoy it. It's fun. Kind of just like the way I've really enjoyed having a family, having kids and having some some dogs, even though sometimes I regret that latter decision <laughs> when the dogs are chewing up the furniture. So if you were a college student today, in what direction do you think you would head? Well, I'd be tempted to work in some startup-y kind of thing, because that seems to be what all kind of smart, driven people are doing. I'm sure I would be. And in fact, as you may know, when I was in college, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And even though I was a chemistry major, kind of a, it was called chemistry modified with psychology. So I did kind of chemistry, like with a minor in psychology, it would be something like that. You know, and I was interested in science and was thinking about medicine and had a lot of family role models in those areas. Because I'd grown up, I think in the 60s and 70s, in the 70s, when I was a teenager, I was rebellious enough against any kind of authority, even though my parents were certainly not authority figures by any stretch. They were very gentle and kind people and really helped me a lot, very supportive. It's still, by very nature, I was a, I don't want to use any bad words on the podcast, but, you know, just fill in the blank or rebellious blank. It might have been some chemistry modified by psychology as well, psychology modified by chemistry. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I think I've always been a little bit like that. So I kind of started to think about business and, you know, why are all my family, you know, physicists or chemists or doctors. So business was interesting to me because the, the entrepreneurial spirit and all of that. And so I went to work at Boston Consulting Group, actually, rather than go directly into science. What, what really attracted me to Boston Consulting Group was that it, it was just filled of incredibly smart intellectuals of, of all different sizes and <laughs> makes and models, uh, really a huge variety of smart, driven people, some with PhDs in economics, some with law degrees, women, men, you know, a really interesting place. That's, I think, what drew me to it. If I were in college today, I'd be looking for a place of opportunity, a place where I felt like I would have mentors. That was really important, even if they weren't doing what I wanted to do. People who I really respected and and was going to learn from and who would who would challenge me and that certainly was the case. So I think I would look for something like that. And I think in some of the startups, and, you know, some of these areas, there's quite a bit of that. But you know, I'd probably end up in graduate school one way or another in the end, just because I think graduate school is one of the places where you learn the most about yourself. So why did you go to grad school? Can you can you maybe talk a bit about uh, why you left BCG? BCG was filled with impressive people who have, and many of whom have gone on to do really impressive things. I was reflecting on my life. And again, part of this was uh, family. My father had sent me some articles written by Freeman Dyson, the physicist who did his great work while he was you know, 19 and 20. Like I had had this thought that, well, you know, I'll go and make some money. And when I'm like 32, 35, 
I'll kind of be a gentleman scientist down the road, right? But I'll make some money first. And I kind of realized that maybe the, maybe those first two decades of life after college might be my most productive uh, years. Of course, in biomedical science, that's not the case. It's not like physics or math. And I didn't have the, the brain for those fields either or the drive. Yeah, I'd done some chemistry research and realized that, you know, that I wanted to do something that was connected to people and, uh, you know, it really fit with the medical kind of thing. You know, medicine just seemed like the right thing to me. It's, it seemed like the perfect blend of science and helping people. If you like science and biology and uh, you're curious about people and want to help do something good, it, it just all fit together. And I guess I had this notion that, you know, talking with a family friend, really a couple things helped me. One, I had this friend named Craig Bradley. He had gotten one of these honorific uh, master's scholarships, and he was in Edinburgh doing a master's in English. He came back, and we were having beers in Boston at, I think it was the Cheers Pub. And the whole time, I was like talking about the brain and science for like an hour and a half. He goes, damn, geez, you know, we've been here for an hour and a half. You haven't told me anything about your work at BCG. What are you talking about all this other stuff for? And it just kind of dawned on me, huh, you know, maybe I have other interests. So it was that and some of this realization that life is short and this real drive that I still have to really have impact, to have a significant life. And, you know, you can have a significant life in many ways, of course. And with your family, it's always going to be significant. But to have impact beyond my first degree relatives, to really have some influence, to help humanity in that way, to, you know, and that really was driving me. I realized I had this drive and I think that's really important. So can you maybe elaborate a bit? I, I totally agree with you that in the biomedical field, for the most part, your, your greatest impact comes, comes later in your career. You know, there's a lot of knowledge you have to gather from many different areas. And that was something I was, uh, found pretty impressive uh, about you is, you know, you're, you're able to kind of pick up enough about so many different things and then tie them together in, in really nice ways. Can you maybe elaborate a bit on that? What, what do you think are the most important compounding returns that makes a biomedical scientist so productive later in their career. We actually recently did some work looking at some citation metrics and things. And, and you, you see as people get later in their career, there's this, this huge divergence in, in, in different measures of, of productivity, starting from a smaller divergence. I mean, it almost, you know, it really does look like compounding returns. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, you know, some of that may have to do with the sociology of science and human endeavors, right? Successful people read your work and then, you know, that helps you get grants and other things. So success does breed success like it does in other fields. If you if you started a few companies and they've been successful, you're, it's going to be easier for you to raise money if you've, you know, same thing with grants. So there's that kind of practical piece of it. It's very interesting because like my early view of this was that Stuff that I'm doing now is kind of a culmination of a vague vision that I had, you know, when I was 37. I had several beliefs. One of them is that, you know, we didn't know very much, <laughs> number one. <laughs> number two, it was going to take methods that were kind of unbiased. I really believed heavily in kind of screening and discovery. We needed to spend a lot more time on that rather than testing hypotheses. And I guess part of that came from the notion that I didn't believe that me personally, that I had, and most of my colleagues, there may be some who disagree with me, but 
me and most of my colleagues know which hypothesis is the best to test. And therefore, if there are potentially thousands of competing hypotheses, why are you testing that one? You need to have a reason for it. And that, you know, omics kind of techniques and other systematic ways of looking at things. That was kind of thing that I started with. And and that was initially not a very popular way to go. People would call those fishing expeditions. It's not hypothesis driven, especially in neuroscience. And, you know, so I think that's part of it. It took a long time for that kind of stuff to catch on. It went for five or 10 years without being recognized at all and getting a lot of heavy criticism. But, you know, my feeling in the long run is that what works out, works out. What doesn't work out will go away eventually. And that's one of the problems with biology and biomedical research in general is that unlike physics and mathematics, and to a lesser extent, things like chemistry, because there's uh, all kinds of laws in chemistry, fundamental theorems that drive things, a theoretical basis of the field. And in biology, one of the theoretical bases has to do with the uh, central dogma, right? But the other is really evolution, which drives everything. But that's such an overarching explanatory theory that, you know, where do you go from there? So we're at a very descriptive stage in, in all biomedical research. And so my belief has been in collecting large data sets and trying to interrogate them and let the data hopefully bring us somewhere. But sometimes we're helped in looking at those data sets by having some knowledge of biology and some biological insights. And I think that's where the kind of compounding occurs is, is like by having some knowledge and also by reading a lot and having a decent memory, I can remember what I read and I go, oh, well, I just read about that. And that is related to this. And so it helps you connect things. And so having a broad fund of knowledge in this area is helpful, even when analyzing big data, because sometimes it's not obvious what the next steps are. I would say, especially when analyzing big data, right? It, it's great to be able to look at a slide and, and recognize some old friends among the, the genes that pop out with these unbiased approaches. Right. And you want to be careful about that, right? You know, about that old friends approach, the dartboard kind of approach. I know that approach. So you have to be sanguine about that as well. And sometimes what happens is it can really help you by having read something and understanding, aha, these nine genes are part of a pathway that I just read about two weeks ago where I heard a talk about. And, you know, that can really take you somewhere. But you have to have some relatively rigorous way of prioritizing hypotheses, let's put it that way. And so using these genomic methods and more systems methods is really helpful in that regard. I, that's been my belief throughout my career. And I, I think uh, finally people have started to work on it, you know, and use these technologies. It's interesting in neuroscience, people really weren't interested in even even any omics technique until single cell analysis came out, which again is uh, is quite interesting to me. And yeah, just it kind of reflects a certain type of bias in the way people are looking at it. But of course, the single cell technologies are wonderful and extraordinarily powerful. Well, it's interesting that it seems to be almost universal for omics technologies that they're pioneered first in cancer and and, and reach neuroscience almost last. <laughs> Well, you know, I'll tell you why. I mean, this is my view of this. Since my graduate school, when I wrote my qualifier on oncogene, the notion of oncogenes in neuroscience, you know, what they were and what, why and this whole thing, was this notion that, you know, number one, we are a decade behind cancer. But, but the reason for that is that cancer is a practical field. Cancer is based on combating 
a terrible array of illnesses that afflict humans. It's all about discovering what the problem is and making a drug or a treatment to stop it, right? And the problem with neuroscience is that I study cerebellum. That's the most important organ in the brain. I study this. That's the most important organ. I study that. The ground truth ends up being opinion leaders. What opinion leaders, what very charismatic uh, decides what's going to be the most important uh, thing. And that's how awards in neuroscience and other things are given. And I really do believe that that's pervasive. You know, it's almost like the high school prom voting. That's not to denigrate those who have made extraordinary advances. Uh, you know, I think there's some things that if you got 100 people in a room, 90 of them would agree on things like optogenetics, you know, single cell approaches, receptor trafficking and synaptic function, vesicle release, G protein coupled receptors. Nobody's going to argue about how seminal those things are, but there's a whole bunch of stuff around that that, again, is just uh, in camps or you know, kind of almost tribal. And, you know, what's so interesting, if you look at the Society for Neuroscience, the organization of the meeting has not changed in the, since 1985. It's not changed since then. And, and, and maybe since the 60s, when it started with this idea of kind of motor systems, sensory systems, development, then there's neurobiology of disease as a separate little section. None of that organization has changed despite what's been learned. And there's also been chronically this gulf between kind of systems neuroscience and molecular neuroscience, right? You study how a receptor works using physics and math. You know, at the same level, you could study functional brain networks using similar methods. And I think as the technology advances, those things will begin to merge. And my hope was that things like transcriptomics and these molecular techniques would provide intermediate quantitative merging phenotypes that would allow us to bridge molecular and systems neuroscience. And I still believe that, although it's, of course, a very, very tough path. On what do you disagree with most of your colleagues? And why are you right? I don't argue with anybody. It just doesn't get you anywhere. I've learned that at home after 35 almost years of successful and wonderful marriage. Have you ever read the book, which I read recently, uh, called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt? Oh, I haven't. It's, it's on my list. Yeah, I think you should read that because it really, I mean, it really gets to fundamental issues about people's beliefs in general and how people argue. But I guess I'll, you know, a couple things over the years that I've noticed that have been frustrating to me, let's put it that way. Number one, when these, uh, we started doing microarrays initially in neuroscience, everything was like, oh, it's just a fishing expedition. It's just a useless fishing expedition. Yeah, I used to go, well, how did you figure out that hypothesis that you're testing? How do you rank that hypothesis quantitatively? Show me the equation that you use to discern that this hypothesis A is better than hypothesis B. You know, so we would have those types of conversations where I'd say, what I'm trying to do is use these data to help me rank hypotheses using data rather than some uh, emotional attachment to something, which is how most of this is done. Not to denigrate the power of those emotional attachments. Those can be really important motivators and drivers and have uh, led to great discoveries. Don't get me wrong. But so, you know, you know, a lot of that kind of criticism. So I disagreed on that, obviously. That was pervasive for about a decade. And again, it has to do with the fact that neuroscience is not necessarily focused on disease. 
neuroscience has, has a lot of different avenues. And in fact, many of us started studying the brain uh, because it's so interesting. It, understanding the brain is a fundamental human endeavor. There's so much of that, and it's so difficult, and it's so challenging from so many different angles that all of that basic work is essential. But I guess my belief has always been that even though I can't know what's important like you might in, in mathematics, the notion that I'm working on disease makes me at least think or believe that what I'm working on is important, at least to some people whose diseases I'm studying. So that's one thing. That's an older thing now because that's kind of water under the bridge. More recently, what I've noticed among a certain ilk of extraordinarily brilliant people, geneticists especially, and it's not everybody, it's just some people have had have not understood or have very, very strong opinions, but who heavily criticize transcriptomics or these omics techniques. They don't have any place in genetics. What are they really doing? There's no causality. It's just a phenotype, blah, blah, blah. Statements like none of these network methods work. And like, well, what do you mean by that? Like, what do you mean by work? And I think some of it has to do with the fact that the methods aren't understood. People come from a math background and don't understand how to connect it to biology. Sometimes it's a lack of imagination, actually, even among extraordinarily brilliant, imaginative people in one area, like math or whatever, who don't have imagination outside of that. Or there might be actual real criticisms that are extraordinarily valid, but I just haven't heard them or had a chance to discuss them. So there's some, there's some of that going on, right? Again, this territoriality around that. You know, and as I get older and older and move along more, that becomes less important. And we focus more and more on the output. And in other words, are we moving things forward to a point where we might have therapeutic targets that then we can work with? And, and in one area, in, in dementia, which I think is helped by the fact that we're looking at a phenotype that we can screen in a dish, which is a death of a neuron. And in some instance, in neural repair, I think we're actually making progress using these techniques and we have proofs of principle where we can really show that these networks identify real targets that we can predict and then verify. And that's where it becomes really exciting when there's experimental verification. And so we have some projects in our lab that started over 15 years ago that are finally coming to fruition in that with other collaborators, we're developing drugs based on these targets. And it would be a dream, you know, for these drugs to eventually go into people and have some impact, right? What lessons do you wish you had learned earlier in your career? Well, well, I mean, I think one of the things that I've learned, because there's a lot of frustration in this work, is I think the better you can accept criticism, the easier it is. I, I've always had a hard skin and belief in what I'm doing, but also accepting and not only accepting, but integrating the criticism has always made our work better. And so early on, that can be tough, but I think it's really, really important. And I wish there were more criticism in a collegial way. Another is, you know, there's a lot of frustrations in academia that happen. A lot of people have written about this. There's so much politics because there's so little at stake. I haven't run into a lot of that, but I think when I do run into things that I think are wrong, uh, either at the institutional level or otherwise, or happening in the field. I think understanding how to reframe things and how to be positive and how to come up with solutions rather than criticism is another thing that has been helpful and has helped me adapt better to think about when there is a problem, to think not first about just identifying the problem and complaining with my colleagues about it, which a lot of academics do, 
you know, then saying, okay, that's a problem. How do we solve that? So I would say those are two things. Um, do you have any parting words, words of wisdom, words of Dan? <laughs> Buy low, sell high. <laughs> 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 what else? You know, um, I took a securitous route, as you know, Grant, and, and we decided not to talk about that. I think we talked about things that are more substantive, actually, in some ways. And I appreciate that. I actually really wanted to talk about the circuitous route, but we ran out of time. Yeah. I mean, all I could say is that I think it's important when you're young to explore your interests and your curiosities and not to funnel too much into what either your parents or society or other people are telling you to do. And I think some of my early wanderings had to do with that. Like, for example, taking a year off college and going skiing and making ski movies, um, going to the Boston Consulting Group. All of those things were extraordinary growth experiences for me as a person and have sat with me for my whole life. I do believe in experiences and I believe in following your curiosity, but I also recognize that I came from an extraordinarily privileged background, not from a, let's say, financial standpoint, but from a familial support and background standpoint. And that, you know, I had parents who were incredibly supportive and academic and intellectual. So I was exposed to a wide variety of things. And there was no reason why I couldn't do any of them, right? I was expected to think about all of them. And, you know, in our society, that's not the case for many people. And I think more, even more so now, because of the expense of education and how hard these things are to reach. And that's one of, been my, one of my real joys of being at UCLA, because it is a public institution. And although it's an elite public institution in terms of academic, it's not elite from the financial or other family background. And there are a lot of first-generation Americans that I have the privilege to work with. And I have to say that that is some of the most satisfying reason and work that I've been at UCLA. I think as a country, we really have to face that because uh, so much of our greatness comes from people with drive who, who come from outside as well as inside. So, yeah, so I do realize that I, I had a head start in many ways. I had many pathways that I could take. I'm grateful for that. But I also think that uh, no matter what your opportunity set is, that exploring your interests and following them one step at a time. I don't know if you remember, Grant, but one of my favorite statements in the laboratory to some, especially graduate students, not as much to postdocs, was this great French proverb that I just love, petit à petit l'oiseau fait son nid. Little by little, the bird makes his nest or her nest. But the notion that it's a stepwise thing. And I, I really do view my career in that way as well. It was little by little. It didn't happen overnight. It's been constant work and high level of motivation, which I think is the most important thing, you know, in life is to work hard. Yeah, it's interesting. You're, you're actually our third podcast guest where that was essentially their message was that, you know, you, you have to go and create your own path. The, the, the first was a Teal fellow who's now going to be a manufacturing organs in space. <laughs> but, but, you know, very much kind of making that point. But yeah, I think it's a really essential. There are amazing opportunities for people and careers and stuff, we, you know, that we couldn't even imagine. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was really enjoyable. Yeah, no, it's always great to talk with you, Grant. And I hope we can talk even outside this podcast sometime. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Mm -hmm.